Bethany's going to bring us the word. Let's extend our hands towards her and pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of God in my life. And Lord, we pull on that gift today. Lord, we ask for peace and clarity, Lord, on her speech and in her mind. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that the word of God would be preached with both clarity and unction. Lord, that it would pierce our hearts, transform us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Happy to speak to you. <laughs> it's actually really fun. So many of the people that are in our community were a part of our wedding. And we're at our wedding. Isn't that fun that you're with people that long, but they're still around six years later when you're celebrating your anniversary? Um, well, it's good to see all of you. We spent the last week in Booth Bay Harbor. Um, somebody said I look extremely rested. I feel rested, but I feel sick from the, all the food I ate. <laughs> we normally eat very healthy, very clean, and I feel like I had more than my fair share of white flour, sugar, and processed <laughs> meat. Um, so I feel a little fluffy. <laughs> Um, but exciting, actually, tomorrow I fly out to Colorado. We actually, for those of you that met the missionaries that we're here that we support, um, I'm on the board for a ministry called AFS, it's ENTR, Center for Training and Sending. Um, and they just relocated out with Dick Eastman out at Every Home for Christ out there. Um, so we're going to see the new facilities and kind of um, looking at where we go as far as this next year. So it's exciting as a community of people, as Hilltop here in Boston, what we've prayed as far as missionaries to the nations of the earth, the hardest and darkest places, that God really has opened a door for us to work in partnership and collaboration that really Boston would fulfill its calling as a land of awakening and missionary sending. So just to, for your hearts to be encouraged that there's good things that lie ahead as far as the fulfillment of promises that we've been praying into. Um, for those, let's see a show of hands who was not here last week, if you weren't here. Okay, good number. Daryl and I actually joke sometimes that we could preach the same message two weeks in a row and we get completely different <laughs> groups of people. I'm not preaching the message that he preached last week, but I know that he referenced last week, and so I just want to make sure I get information for anybody that might not be up to speed. Um, he shared last week about um, Anne Graham Watts had called for, um, for those of you that don't know who Anne Graham Watts is, um, it's Billy Graham's daughter. Um, she had called for seven days of prayer from July 1st until July 7th, which tomorrow is the 7th. Um, and she was calling it 777, meaning it's um, the seventh month of the year for seven days. And then on the final day, which is tomorrow, she was calling for solemn assemblies of seven hours throughout the nation. Um, so in short, I'm not going to share with you the entirety of what she shared, um, but twofold. One is she spoke in Washington, D.C. at the National Day of Prayer Breakfast. Um, it, by chance, did anybody get to see her video message that she shared? Um, you should look it up because she's definitely of the older generation. Um, it, it's really actually very powerful. She stands up in Washington, D.C. to really address on behalf of the National Day of Prayer. And what she felt from the Lord was to be that of Joel 1. And if for any of you, and we're going to look closely at Joel today, but for any of you that have not read the book of Joel, what it is is the prophet is coming and he's giving a warning of judgment that is coming to the nation. And what she says is, is that she feels as though it's time that there's alarms that are sounding across the entire nation and that people are not responding to the alarms that are being sounded. Um, let's actually, if you have your Bibles here today, let's turn to the book of Joel. For those of you that don't know, her father, um, who is Billy Graham, if you're, I, I know that some of the people in our community are newer believers. Billy Graham has probably preached to more people um, than any person in history as far as being an evangelist. Um, he's one of the fathers of the faith in our nation, very sound across denominational lines. He's respected and honored and revered. He's a true man of the faith. And for those of you that, that don't know, actually two years ago, so Anne, his wife, it has issued this call for seven days of prayer from July 1st to July 7th. It was actually two years ago that Billy Graham wrote an open letter. Um, and let's just say this, if you're going to pay attention to what anybody as far as in the faith or in the Christian world is going to say, it should probably be Billy Graham. Um, if you're going to kind of have your ears perk up and pay attention and say, okay, I should probably listen 
Because this is a true father in the faith that has been sound in the word of God. That throughout his history and his legacy in the faith that he is not here. Um, so two years ago, he did, has anybody read, it was called uh, Billy Graham, an open letter. And it was actually titled, My Heart Aches for America. That was um, the title of it. And so it's actually interesting that Anne Graham Lotz um, gave this word, this word of warning, and this call to prayer and fasting pretty much two years to the day that her father had given a call. But there's actually something remarkable. Um, for those of you that have been a part of any type of prayer and fasting over the last decade or the last you know, 20 years in the nation, there, you'll, you would know that there's been different fathers in the faith, maybe Bill Wright, other ones, that have given a call to prayer and fasting that has been heated or responded to in varying measures. And we've seen that. For those of you that have been in New England for any length of time, in 2001, there were 40,000 people gathered in government center for a solemn assembly in New England. That was part of the call. So there's varying responses. Well, Billy Graham, when he issued um, this open letter, and it was called My Heart Aches for America, largely it's recognized today that two years ago there was pretty much no response. There was no like massive solemn assembly. There was no epic, you know, response from the body of Christ. And this is actually what his letter said two years ago. It said, and this is what he wrote. He said, some years ago, my wife Ruth, Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing. When she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation, nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods such as technology, technology, and sex. She startled me by explaining, if God does not punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. She was probably thinking of a passage in Ezekiel where God tells why he brought those cities to ruin. Now, this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and, and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Ezekiel 16, uh, 49 through 50. I wonder what Ruth would think of America if she were alive today. In the years since she, she made that remark, millions of babies have been aborted, and our nation seems largely unconcerned. Self-centered indulgence, pride, and lack of shame over sin, sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Just a few weeks ago, in a prominent city in the South, Christian chaplains who served the police department were ordered to no longer mention the name of Jesus in prayer. It was reported that during a recent police-sponsored event, that only one person, the only one person allowed to pray was someone who addressed the being in the room. Similar scenarios are now commonplace in towns across America. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. Yet, the farther we get from God, the more the world spirals out of control. My heart aches for America and its deceived people. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. In Jonah's day, Nineveh was the, the lone world superpower, wealthy, unconcerned, and self-centered. When the prophet Jonah finally traveled to Nineveh and proclaimed God's warning, people heard and they repented. I believe the same thing can happen once again. This, this time in our nation. It's something I long for. He actually goes on to talk about an initiative that his son Franklin um, was going to do at that time, so I'm not going to continue with that. But more just, I want you to hear his words as a father in the faith of his perception, his view, and his articulation of the spiritual landscape of America. And for him to say that his heart aches for our nation. Now, we're going to talk about several things today. And one of those being that when we mention the word revival, when we pray for a spiritual revival, and I know even starting when I said out of Joel 1, that Joel prophesied judgment. There's many people in the room that the word even judgment to you, it carries varying um, degrees of offensiveness that we would even say that God would judge. Um, so I acknowledge that even within the room today, that there's people from varying backgrounds that, number one, there's people that don't even believe or see the need for revival in our country. 
There's not even an awareness, and we haven't even been awakened to the reality of that. So there can be a group of people that that concept, they're largely not awakened to it. There can be those that agree that there is a need for revival and awakening, but they actually don't think that God will bring that, because they think that God will judge our nation, that somehow we're beyond repair, that it's, uh, you know, the book of Revelations and the Antichrist is rising, so just throw your arms up and defeat and despair and it's all over. There's those that do believe that there's a need for revival, that are expectant that God will bring revival, but they haven't yet been awakened to the reality of their role in seeing that come to pass. That historically, God does not move in a vacuum. He does not move independently from man. You can't look biblically and you can't look historically at somehow a spontaneous move of God that was not in partnership in response to the people of God in there. Like, okay, Billy Graham just mentioned Jonah. Let's look, let's look at just at the story of Jonah. The Lord unctions Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh because he wants to give them opportunity to repent. This is Old Testament we're talking. Even before the cross, even before there's forgiveness, even before there's Jesus, the blood, all of that. He's already at that point in history, he's giving opportunity and time for repentance and restoration. But the extraordinary thing is when Jonah doesn't go, God doesn't say, okay, I'll do it with or without you. I'll just move somehow and come and give a dream or a vision to all of those people. He literally waits for the response from Jonah. Obviously, you know, he aligned some circumstances. There was a big fish involved. But he was looking for a man to be a messenger and to stand in agreement with his heart. And the same is true today. So some of us can actually look and we can acknowledge in our nation, yes, we have a need for revival. Yes, there's a downward spiral. But yet we haven't come to the place of taking responsibility for what is our part and what is our role to play. And that's ultimately where we're going to end this message. That's where our ultimate destination will be, is what is our response and what is our role in that. But we find these, basically these responses to the issue of judgment. We find an emotional response. Even for me to say that, there's some of you that even, you thought, I've heard that, I've heard the word judgment, I've even heard warnings of judgment in our nation, and I haven't seen anything happen. And so there's a place where my heart is callous, and I don't believe it's true. One of the things that we need to recognize about judgment, and this is actually back to the book of Joel that we're going to be looking at, is Joel literally comes warning them because they experienced a judgment, and it was locusts, <laughs> had devoured their crop, had affected their economics, and clearly they did not discern and decipher that that was a judgment from the Lord. They were, they, it required the prophet Joel to come say, this was the hand of God opposing us and resisting us. Then he sent a foreign army. He calls it a foreign army, a locust. He calls locusts a foreign army. But Abraham Lotz was actually trumpeting Joel 1 on the National Day of Prayer. She said, we don't have locusts invading our land, but what would be a foreign army that is not men, that's not military power? And she actually identified the issue of pornography. That it's something that is ravaging the mind of a generation. The spirit of perversion that has just inoculated and numbed the mind of a generation, that has destroyed marriages, that has seduced men and women into, number one, entertaining it mentally, but then it's leading further down the road to engaging with prostitution and infidelity and all of those things. That it's something that, in the secular society, but also in the Christian arena, is a, a foreign army that has invaded the mind of a generation. She went through several issues that maybe we don't sit back and we don't call them a crisis. But if we truly had the heart of God, if we were seeing with a renewed mind outside of the lens of secularism and humanism and the American culture that has been so normalized to us, that there's over a million infants that are murdered every year in America, and since it's been legalized, that it's close to 55 million babies. That, that's a lot of innocent bloodshed. And even that alone, in, in Christian society and culture, is controversial, it's debatable, as far as where we see it. Even that has become a gray area in the Church of Jesus Christ in America. 
And even for those that it has not, it's not gray, that we can see that as an issue of murder. We even see the root of it as far as um, sexual immorality. We see the root of it as far as convenience and all of those things. Even in those circles, there's a place where it's been so normalized that we're, we're numb and we're callous and we're indifferent. But this is actually what we find in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of uh, Perthiah. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and let their children another generation. What the chewing locust left and the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left and the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my, my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches were made white. Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth, for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering has been cut off from the house of the Lord. The, the priest mourn, who ministers the Lord. The field is wasted, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, and the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up. This goes on and on throughout the whole chapter of 1, and in chapter 2, he gives the solution to what they're supposed to do. But what we have to understand about the book of Joel is literally, Joel is identifying this is a judgment from the Lord. And so if it's a judgment from the Lord, the way that it is eradicated, there is no other solution than a supernatural solution, which is responding to the Lord in repentance and returning to the Lord. But he's identifying, he's, draw, he's saying, awake. Like, you don't even fully realize what's happening. You haven't acknowledged and identified even the source of your devastation. But you know what he's also doing? He's saying, that was the beginning. There's another storm coming. He was identifying that there was another crisis on the horizon, that there was another devastation that would come. But the, it could be averted if there was a right response from the people of God. And that right response is, rend your hearts and not your garments. To come before the Lord with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. You know, one of the things that actually provoked my heart when I was reading Billy Graham's letter is when he used the word, my heart aches for America. Mm. I mean, how many of us can sit back and we can hear the statistics as far as the sex industry and how many girls are sold into it? We can hear the statistics of abortion. Um, you know, my husband and I went through the, the training class for foster care, and when you really get in touch with the children of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the amount of devastation, the amount of abuse, and what is going on, the crisis in the family, I mean, that's just in our state, but nationwide. How many of us, when we become aware of these facts and these things, for a moment, maybe our heart is afflicted, but we don't live in a posture that our heart aches for America. Mm. You know what we do? We go back to our drunkenness of food and eating and dining and having our pleasure. We go back to our entertainment and our constant media fill that distracts our mind from truly thinking and our spirit from truly being alert and awake. We go back to all of those things, sports and entertainment and you know, the constant socializing that are a distraction. And what they do is they numb us to the true present state and reality. So we find Andrea Motz on um, National Day of Prayer. She reads this, and she says that she feels as though that there's judgment coming to our nation, that the Lord has been sounding alarms so that the church would awake, and that really judgment can be averted. So, as I said, you know, we all have kind of a different paradigm regarding the issue of judgment, also regarding the issue of revival. Um, I know that some people think that there is a coming great revival. Others think that we're crazy when we pray for that. They think that we're um, somehow not biblically 
rooted and grounded, I would encourage each and every one of you, instead of kind of going, oh, I don't have to wrestle through that because I'm not a leader. I don't have to think about, like, what does the Bible say? What doesn't the Bible say? Because I'm not accountable for leading other people or I'm not teaching anything. This is what I would encourage you. Wrestle in your heart as far as biblically what you feel like you have the authority to pray for. Because if you do not biblically feel as though it's clearly outlined as far as prophetic um, declaration throughout Isaiah and actually all throughout the word of God, as far as the, the Lord in the last days would pour up his spirit in an extraordinary measure, Habakkuk declares that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Isaiah chapter 60 says that although the deep darkness will cover the earth, that a great glory will arise over my people, that my glory shall be seen upon them, that kings will come to the brightness of their shining. I mean, it's extraordinary what's prophesied in Isaiah. But you know, I know for me, when I had to go back and forth with theological debate of different sectors of the body of Christ and people that don't think we're praying biblically, every time I go back to the Word of God and say, God, where is this going in America? Obviously, you don't want to pray in vain. You don't want to waste your years in a, in a prayer room praying for something that is not going to come to pass. Study biblical prophecy. But you know what? You have to come also to a place that you can wrestle through the Word of God. But then, you need to hear the Word of God within speaking to your heart. And I remember one night as I was kind of going through biblical prophecy as far as what is our authority to pray for revival? What does it look like for America? Are we just going to almost continue down this downward spiral, you know, all of these questions that I had. I remember it was at that time, the Lord reminded me of a word he spoke to me about 10 years ago. And I, I, you guys have all heard the word, because most of you have heard our prophetic history, but the, the, book, the book is called um, The Ten Greatest Revivals in History. And I was going to preach somewhere, and when I ran up to my room to go get the book so I could use it as a, a reference while I was teaching, as soon as I put my hand on, on the cover of the book, I heard the audible voice of God inwardly say, the greatest revival in the history of man is within your womb. And it jolted me, not my womb, the womb of a generation, that, that the greatest revival in the history of man is within the womb of a generation. I, at that point, had never heard that kind of language or grandiose thinking. I since that time have heard great men of God say things like, it'll be the culmination of every other move. And I go, yay! Like, that, that's what I feel like I heard. But I remember at that time, hearing, I've never heard the audible voice of God. Interrupt me. I was in my path just to get my book. Interrupt me. And I remember that night when I was praying about biblical prophecy. And as I was asking the Lord, like, what is our authority to pray for certain things? Where is it going with us as a nation? All of that. The Lord reminded me of that word and how he impregnated me with hope for America. And one of the things that we need to understand, and I think I shared this um, sometime over the past year, but there's a mythological milestones in any culture in society. And what that is, it's the percentages of how the percentage of people groups affects the sum total or the whole. And I know I've shared this, but for those of you that may not have heard it um, prior, is that when there's 2% of, actually let me start with higher percentage. If you have 16% of a population, so let's just, we'll break it down to like some place like Massachusetts. If you have 16% of a population, that's the threshold where that 16% becomes catalytic for reproduction and multiplication. So let's just say, if 16% of people in the Massachusetts area are spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians that are drawing their, their understanding and their theology from the Word of God in a fundamental way, 16%, then in the state of Massachusetts, that body of people becomes catalytic for, reprodu for reproduction and multiplication. I'm not sure what we have in the state of Massachusetts, but 16%, that's not a very high percentage. That's actually a low percentage, so that's very hopeful. You can get 16% of a population that you actually become catalytic. 10% um, of a population, the reality is probably capable of spontaneous reproduction. That's meaning it's, it's capable and it's probable that there can be spontaneous reproduction. If there's 2%, of a population. It means that that population is on the borderline of extinction, almost as if they cannot exist and they will not remain. And if you look at American culture and society, when you look statistically at it, it's actually as far as 
Bible-believing Christians. I don't mean kind of the um, fringe denominations that in many ways have departed from the authority of the word and have adopted different theology. Bible-believing Christians that the word of God is the authority for how they choose and make decisions. They say it's approximately 2% of our culture and society in America, which, according to statistics, don't let that discourage you because we're going someplace with this message, but according to statistics and the natural, that would mean that it's almost as we, as a Christian identity, are almost borderline extinct. Which, how many of you ever feel that way? <laughs> I mean, really and truly, when you think about it, I have people that move to the city of Boston all the time, and when they meet with us, they'll say things like, I don't know, I've never been a person that's felt like ashamed of my faith, but when I'm here, I, I all of a sudden feel like I shouldn't let people know I'm a Christian. I feel like, and they're like, what is that? But you know what it is? It's when there's a prevailing mindset that is hostile to Christ, that's hostile to truth. Although you may be somebody that is fully convinced and persuaded in your inner man, you get into that environment. And I mean, I've told you my stories of homeschool groups and things where all of a sudden you're kind of like, oh my goodness, if you let your true identity be known, you are such an anomaly. Not only an anomaly, but when you are a, a Bible believing Christian, there is such a stigma and misunderstanding in our society of who you are. And if, you know, my life band, because I was at the beach, it's not there. Um, but if you have your life band on, all of a sudden you're seen as judgmental and that somehow you're, you're not for women's rights and women's concerns. I mean, there's such a stigma surrounding all of those things. But the statistics regarding um, the U.S. is that we're approximately at that 2% border. If you look historically from 1924 to 1944, 65% of the United States was active in church engagement. And when, when we say church engagement, that means literally it's affecting how they vote. It's affecting who they vote for. That there's a place where their faith is affecting the sum total of their existence in their life. That was the builder generation. In 1945 to 1965, which is the boomer generation, it dropped to 35% church engagement. Then from 1966 to 1985, which is the buster generation, it dropped to 15% church engagement. From um, 1984 afterwards was the bridger generation. It was when it dropped to 4% church engagement. And most of you know, specifically the college and high school age is what they say is when we're losing, like in droves, young adults and young people, that they're no longer remaining in the church and um, that, that is not what they're choosing to walk out for their adult years. So you can see very clearly, Book of Joel, when he's talking, there's a crisis. <laughs> he's saying there's an issue. We, we have a, a problem of epidemic proportions. Like I said, we're going to go someplace where, with this today, but for those of us in the room that may not even be aware that there's a problem as far as nationwide, if you can identify that after 19, well, number one, it went from, it's dropped from 65% church engagement to the last time it was um, researched was after 1984, and it was actually up until uh, 2008 was 4%, and now they speculate that we're at like the 2% mark. So just saying, that in and of itself is a crisis. That's a crisis when you're losing, you're losing youth and young adults in massive droves, and that instead of the church being the um, ever-increasing and influencing voice in culture, that it's been slowly being diminished in our nation, which is a Christian nation. So number one, the issue of there is a crisis. Number two, I want to even address we as a community of people, our biblical response and our biblical stance is number one this. Yes, God is a God of mercy. I Biblically, when you look at the word of God, his desire is never to judge. If you look at every biblical account, he gives time, he gives warning, he, give, he sends prophets. I mean, even if you look at the book of Revelations, which we'll look at a little bit, is if you look biblically, God's heart is towards mercy. But the sector of the body of Christ that presently would say that in the New Testament that there is no judgment, that after the cross of Jesus Christ that God would no longer judge a city or judge a nation, um, that theology that's been adapted is so sorry if I offend you right now. But number one, you have to look at something. 
When Jesus was upon the earth, there's three accounts where he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus himself prophesied the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. After Jesus dies, 40 years after Jesus dies, it happens. There's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and it takes place. Jesus prophesied it and it's fulfilled. It's all New Testament. It's all after the death, burial, and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's after he took all of the wrath of God for man's sinful nature. It was done and it was finished. But yet that took place. You also have to look in the book of Acts. I, you know what, for those of you that might need to look more closely at that, the temple uh, destruction took, took place in 70 AD. It was 40 years after Jesus prophesied it. Jesus prophesied it in Matthew 24. Uh, 1 through 8, Luke 21, 5 through 6, and Mark 13, 1 through 4. But then we also have the account in um, in Acts 5. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Hello! <laughs> I mean, that's crazy business right there. Because we're talking book of Acts, they all, this is after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has happened. 5,000 are added in a day. They basically all begin to share their possessions and give all that they have to this communal living. We actually, for those of you who are familiar with the story, Ananias is the husband, Sapphira is the wife. Ananias comes in and basically gives uh, his offering for land that he sold. But the problem is he lied. He actually said it was like the sum total of what, I, like if he maybe had just said, it's a fortune, it's 80%. I kept 20. Like, <laughs> tell the truth, dude. <laughs> so he lies. He says it's the sum total. The guy drops dead. New Testament. There you go. Yes. That's Jesus. <laughs> the guy drops dead. He lies about the offering. The poor wife comes in, doesn't know that he's already lied, and drops dead. They ask her, is this the amount that you sold the land for? And this is the total sum. Yes, it is. They rebuke her. They said, how is it that both of you could conspire together to lie, not to us, but to the Holy Spirit? The wife comes dead. This is the New Testament. <laughs> I mean, you, you can look all throughout the Word of God. I know it makes us feel really good to say, we are New Testament believers. Jesus took all of the wrath. You know what he did? He took the wrath for our sin that we repent of. Unrepenting sin is judged. I'm sorry if that sounds Old Testament. I'm sorry if that sounds wrath. But it's this understanding. And, then, and right here is we as a, as a younger generation of people, if you look biblically, um, how many of you guys are familiar with Prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah comes on the scene. Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of God. He's basically declaring we're going into captivity. He's like giving them the rundown of what's going to happen. So you know what happens in Jeremiah's day? Jeremiah's folk that he's talking to, they decide to go back to the prophecies of Isaiah. They're like, you know what? Isaiah prophesied. And it's actually in Isaiah chapter 36 through 37 is when Isaiah gives the people hope. He basically says, God's going to rescue you. God's going to deliver you. God is going to rescue out of the circumstance. So in Jeremiah's day, follow this. Jeremiah is speaking to a group of people. He's speaking about captivity. He's speaking about what the Lord's going to do. And what do they do? They basically nullify what he says. They go back to the prophecies of Isaiah. They say, oh, no, no, no. It was prophesied that God was going to have mercy and he was going to deliver. I'm holding on to that good word. <laughs> That's a good word and I'm holding on to it. But the problem was is that they didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear to discern the present hour that they were living in. Because if they had looked closely, Isaiah 39, Isaiah did prophesy about the captivity. It was a different time and season. See, this is the problem. And this is precisely what the Pharisees did. They, we develop a theology and we develop an understanding of God without understanding that depending on the time and the season, depending on the nation and the people group, depending on the historical context, we have to discern what the Lord is saying. So the Pharisees precisely, you know what they did? They could not embrace a Messiah that would be crucified. 
They looked at biblical prophecy and they interpreted it as he would come and set up his kingdom as a victorious king. They were living with that theology and they were living with that understanding. And so therefore the Messiah that was in front of them, they could not discern, they could not embrace, and they did not understand the hour that they were in. Instead, they were looking at other prophecies of what this Messiah would look like. And through, and let's just use the word, through a humanistic lens of what that would look like. And see, that's the danger that we have presently, is that when we look at our, our nation, number one, when we, when we disqualify certain things as the hand of the Lord. When we, even I understand it gets really sketchy and really confusing with the issue of natural disaster, like God wouldn't do that, because what happens is the righteous and, and uh, the just and the unjust, they're all suffering together, and how can the Lord, I understand all of it gets confusing and a little complex, I get it, I totally get it. But let me ask you a question, Jesus himself prophesied the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem. He, that's amazing that he actually takes ownership. He'll, he'll take ownership that it's coming down and that there's a judgment that's coming. See, where we actually get ourselves in trouble is number one, when we don't rightly discern the state of our nation and the state that our nation is in. Number two, when we don't understand the heart of God, his position, his posture, and his response toward a sinful nation like ours. I mean, we openly, it's, it's not even that we are an unevangelized people that have not heard truth. We are a nation that has been fully evangelized, that has experienced blessing and prosperity because of the hand of God. And it's in that position and posture that we continually choose to defame his name, that we continually choose to bump him out of every sector of society, and we are willing to offend him but no other. I mean, we don't want to offend the Muslim faith, we don't want to offend this faith, that faith, but when it comes to Christianity in the name of God and the authority of Jesus Christ, then that is the point where we have to make sure that no one is offended by, by who he is. When we look at these things and when we understand that we as a nation, as far as where we've departed, where we stand presently, the important thing for us to do is to identify what is the answer. And all throughout biblical history, what we actually find, God is so gracious. Revelations, actually turn here with me. He's gracious, he's kind, he's merciful. How many of you guys are familiar with um, these passages of scripture that specifically are talking to the seven churches? We don't have time, for the sake of time, I'm just give you an overview. The seven churches, there's one church that was in revival. The other six churches, basically the word of the Lord comes to them with a rebuke saying, this is what I have against you. He uses the word against you. Remind you, this is the church again. This is not secular society, this is the church. This is what I have against you. Then he goes on to say, but if you repent, this is what I will do, and this is what will happen. He gives opportunity, ample opportunity for repentance. But then he also says, and if you don't repent, this is what will happen. Your lampstand will be taken away. There's a consequence. This is New Testament. This is after Jesus. This is after the cross. That he's laid out before you. Your option is you can repent and return to me. And if you do, you get restoration. You get revival. You know, the extraordinary thing is I've actually had people say the word revival is never used in the Bible. So they don't like people praying for revival because they think it's not in the Bible. They don't think it's there. If you look actually... Um, Revelations 3. Revelations 3, an angel of the Lord to the church of Sardis from these things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So he's saying, You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Then he goes on to say, Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, that are uh, that are ready to die, for I have not Sorry, I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come to you. 
This whole passage of scripture, if you look at it in the Greek, the issue of being alive versus being dead is an issue of being revived, of coming back to life. So put aside the language, put aside the lingo, put aside whether you want to use the word revival or awakening or restoration, or even just use the word repentance. And literally what it is, is being restored to the spiritual quality of life that he's intended you to walk in. That's revival, simple 101. Being restored to the spiritual life, the life of the Spirit of God. And the issue of the need for revival is that we are lacking the life of the Spirit of God. What is the fruit of the Spirit of God? It's liberty, it's joy, it's peace. If you think about even the issues of emotional brokenness, if you think about the issues of addiction that plague the American church, we're in need of revival. We're in need of a touch of the Holy Spirit. So we actually find in Revelations, we find this promise to these, these seven churches. Um, I will give you time to repent. We also find in 2 Chronicles 7, it's actually when it's being spoken. If you identify that the heavens have been shut up and that you are without rain, if you're identifying that the hand of God is resisting you and opposing you, very, very simply, 2 Chronicles 7, it goes on to say that if you'll turn to me, if you will pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. That's the answer. So we have a national crisis. So Anne Watts proclaims it. She, Anne Graham Watts says, it's Joel 2. There's judgment coming. Her father, two years prior, speaking of, over the issue of his heart aching for America, speaking even how his wife said, that if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you know what? He's been exceedingly patient with us. Exceedingly kind. He, he, he's been long-suffering. But the extraordinary thing is that the answer is extremely simple. It's not complex. It's, it's, he doesn't give us a list of 50 things and, and hoops to jump through and things to do. He says it this simply. That if you'll turn to me, pray, repent, turn from your wicked ways, I'll heal your land. Mm-hmm. Now, I actually have a quote that I want to read to you guys from. Because obviously the issue of prayer, the issue of revival, are things that we all discuss in depth here. A.W. Tozer says, have you ever noticed how much praying for revival has been going on as of late? And how little revival has resulted I believe the problem is that we have been substituting praying for obeying. And it simply will not work. What A.W. Tozer is saying is we can pray for revival. So, you know, after some of what I've just shared, we're just going to identify that we as a community of people, we recognize the need for revival in our nation. We recognize the desperate hour. Two, we recognize biblically and historically that the Lord desires to revive his people. It's not saying that there won't be even maybe portions and, and aspects of judgment, that there won't even be increasing wickedness and darkness in the earth, but it's his heart and his desire to bring revival that all man would know and experience the fullness of his presence in his glory. So if we've seen movements that have prayed for revival, if we've seen houses of prayer emerge that pray for revival, there does come a crisis and a question of why haven't we seen it yet? A.W. Tozer says that because we're praying for revival, we've substituted, substituted praying for obedience. What he means by that, and he's, he's shared it in more in depth in other places, is he said, basically, instead of going and preaching the good news like you've been commanded to, We've actually been instructed, preach the good news. Instead of even like, if I'm sharing about tithes and offerings, there's dimensions, there's whole dimensions of our Christian faith and our Christian life that we are not tenderized to the word of God and we are not responsive. We grieve the Holy Spirit, we ignore the Holy Spirit, we continue in patterns and sin. How many of us sit down to televisions and view entertainment that if I we're in the room with you. <laughs> or your mother. <laughs> Some of you, that's interchangeable. Um, <laughs> you, you would not partake of. You wouldn't even necessarily say or classify it as you were sitting when you're sitting 
not sitting there going, I'm sitting by watching this, I'm sitting by watching this, but your conscience would be startled if someone that you loved and respected and honored that had a seat or homeless walked into that room. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> but yet we, we give no concern or we're not at all grieved the fact that we do that to the Holy Spirit. But yet we'll gather together, we'll join national solemn assemblies, prayer groups, prayer meetings, send revival our nations in crisis. No, you're in crisis. See, this is when revival starts. Is instead of looking at the epidemic of the sex trade, instead of looking at the epidemic of abortion, that somehow our nation is spiraling down and it's out of control of all that's going on in government, it's huge. It's endless. We could think about it, pray about it, obsess over it, and be burdened by it all the day long. But when we come to the place of actually saying, you know what, I am not going to substitute praying for culture and society. And to have that replace my own personal obedience. See, because this is actually what we find. Is we find all throughout history, it's men and it's women that have lived a life of radical obedience. Yes, they were people of prayer. And I know that I emphasize that consistently and relentlessly, the issue of prayer. And I, I will continue to. But you know what? I'm walking on to this thing and this understanding of, yes, we need a praying people, but we need people that's more than what you declare through your mouth. What do you declare to your life? What is your life declaring to the atmosphere? See, you can wage warfare by the decisions that you make every day. You don't even have to stand up and say, I find the stronghold or a pornographer. Don't have to do it. All you do is you walk in authority and you walk in victory and not participating with pornography in your own life. And you know what it is? You have victory, you have liberty, and now, therefore, every person around you, you have the grace and the anointing and the authority to pray for them, to speak truth to them also. We substitute prayer for obedience. What are the places that instead of just simply availing ourselves and surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit, will grieve the Spirit of God? But yet all the while we focus on the national crisis at hand in America and why we lack revival. We lack revival because as individuals we do not walk and live in revival. That's why we lack revival. You get a handful of people that really start taking the word of God for what it says. Forget our excuses. You know, I was actually reading my son um, out of Daniel. And yes, we all know the story of Daniel in the lion's den and how basically the, the decree was put out that you cannot pray, da da da. Daniel refuses. Not only, not only does he refuse to obey the king's decree, he literally like opens up his windows, kind of like, yep, this is what I'm doing, and I'm not afraid of it. He goes to the lion's den. But what does it do? They actually see the manifestation of God's power. They end up fearing God, honoring God, and making a decree in favor of Daniel's law. Crazy. See, if it's our day in our society, we do the whole. And if you really want to influence government and society, this is the way you have to do it. You have to earn your respect in their favor. No, you don't. That is not the way it happened biblically. You know what they did? They made an allegiance with the man Christ Jesus. And they said, no matter what the cost to the extent, but you actually find it. You find Meshachna, Meshachna, and Abednego again. The decree, is, the, the decree is put out that all of you, that when the music is playing, you got what you need to do the deal. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it, right? They don't obey the decree. So what happens? They get reported, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. How many of you guys know American culture and society? But if you got church building 101, or if you got out of influence society 101, we'd all be like, just like go stealth mode. <laughs> like rub shoulders, do the game, do that. Don't say anything about controversial things like that. Nothing controversial. Nothing that's gonna rub people. Side influence. Side to get into high places with high people. So you can shine your light back. Yeah, all right. So Matt, shout out to Here we go. They literally get put into the fiery furnace. 
man in there, angel, Jesus, whatever you want to call it. So now it comes, Nebuchadnezzar, what happens? Do you guys know what happens? They give these guys a place of honor. They go from throwing them into a furnace, wanting to crucify them and kill them because of their allegiance with God, that they would not bow their knee to an idol. And then because they stood in that place of violent obedience, God vindicates them, endorses them. They're given a place of honor and favor and influence, and then the decree is put out about their God. See, it is so contrary to the way that we view Christianity and how it influenced the world in our day. And actually, so simple. So, 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 so simple. Just obey him no matter what the cost. Obey him no matter what the cost. You don't need to get into an intellectual wrangling of how do I become influential at Harvard? How do I get the next? Just forget it. Just, this is your answer. Obey him no matter what the cost. When you start going after a desire of influence, of you want to work your way into this company, you want to get to this place, when you start making decisions based upon getting to a position in life, you've already compromised. Just throw it out the window. Just, just throw it out the window. Just say, all I have to do is obey him no matter what the cost. And you know what? If they say that they want to throw me in the fiery furnace, the angel of the Lord is going to show up. And when he shows up, I will be vindicated, I'll be endorsed, and then I'll have more favor than I know what to do with. Because I obey him no matter what the cost. So this is what Adam Richardson said. He said, the reason we do not see revival in all of our praying is because we have substituted our praying for obedience. We don't want to be obedient. We don't want to live those crazy, sketchy, freaky lives of people that will do anything, that will lock themselves in their room for 12 hours a day. Come on, you might think that's nuts so, but Jonathan Edwards, glory of God, falling all over New England man, 12 hours a day the dude prayed. And you want to know something? That was his place of obedience. He was obedient no matter what the cost. Since he was a terrible pastor, never did home visitation, never did meals with his congregation, he stunk as a pastor. But when he stood up in the pulpit, the glory of God would fall. That was his, his place of obedience. He knew he was called to extended hours of prayer. What is the area in your life that you're substituting prayer for obedience? Where are we praying for revival in our nation? Where are we praying for sectors of society, but we ourselves are not living in the reality of revival in that area of our life? I'm going to read you guys, especially um, the Holy Club. You guys know I've shared the history, the rival history of John Wesley. These guys that saw revival take place, they were the guys that were the Holy Club that saw the birthing of revival, they would ask themselves these questions. I'm going to close out with these. They'd ask themselves these questions every single night. Um, you know what? I'm going to narrow down and not tell because it's 22 questions. So it's a lot. I'll narrow it down. Okay. Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-judging? Did the Bible live in me today? They didn't ask that we about today. Because how many of you know we can read the Bible without truly living in us? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give the Bible time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? The true indication of our fellowship with the Holy Spirit is the place of prayer. When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? See, this is what Tozer's talking about, bringing it home. He co we're commanded to preach the gospel. If we will actually obey the word, rather than praying for the gospel to exponentially increase throughout the city of Boston, but somehow we don't want to open our mouth and share it, this is what Tozer's saying, do not substitute prayer for obedience. Do I pray about how I will spend my money? 
Do I go to bed on time and get up on time? I guess on time would also be getting up on time, making allotments for time in the presence of God in the morning prayer. Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about, about which? Oh, do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? So if your conscience is uneasy, do you persist and do it anyway? Am I defeated in any area of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publicans? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, or hold resentment towards or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? eradicating it from my heart? Do I grumble or complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? I read you guys those questions in closing here because like I said, Andrew Ross has called for seven days of prayer and fasting for our nation. Tomorrow's the last day. I would encourage us as a community of people, as number one, is to ask God for his heart for our nation. That we would be able to say like Billy Graham did, my heart aches for America. That that aching heart would move us to a place, yes, of intercession, but it would also move us to a place that instead of living completely unto self, for gratification, for our own fulfillment, for our own pleasure, our own security, our own identity, our own success, that when we see the need of a nation surrounding us, we would desire to be the answer. That we would desire to be light in the midst of darkness. That we would desire to be people that live in revival and awakening. And truly, we can bring revival and awakening. Because that's actually what we find from Jonah to Daniel to all of these men and women throughout biblical and world history is the contingencies upon a man or a woman really releasing the presence of God and invoking the presence of God and becoming almost a landing strip. And a, and a, 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 it would be a landing strip for the presence of God to come upon. So I want to encourage us, as we have one last day with this fast tomorrow, I want to encourage us to spend time in the place of prayer. But I want us to begin to even ask the Lord, is there any place that I'm substituting prayer for obedience? Not what is my mouth declaring that I want in prayer, but what is my life declaring? What does our life declare through our choices? What does our life declare through our priorities, through our time? by what we spend our time on, or what we look upon. What does our life declare? And let our life declare that we long for revival, and that the presence of God is our priority, and that we'll obey at any cost. Let's stand to our feet. God, we ask you, Father, that, that we would not be people that simply pray even casual prayers for revival in our nation, but God, we ask that you would move us beyond our comfort, that you would move us even beyond complacency. God, we ask as a community of people for Hilltop, but also for Jayhop, community that gathers here all throughout the week. God, that you would uh, call us out, Lord, from a place of a casual approach to prayer. God, we ask that the prayers that we have prayed for our nation, even for the city of Boston, Lord, that those prayers would pursue us and even haunt us. God, that we would long to be a living reality of that which we cry out for, of that which we're believing for. God, we come before you today, Father, and we say we don't want to declare our desire for you with our mouths. God, we don't want to even cry out for revival for simply from the posture of our lips. But God, we want our entire life, Lord, to be a declaration that we, we love you and we worship you above all else. God, we want every dimension of our life to declare our need for you and our dependency upon you. God, we ask for those of us that are desensitized and even callous to the state of our nation, Lord, that we are truly untroubled and unconcerned. God, we ask, Father, that you would disturb us, that you would disrupt us, that you would wound our hearts, that you would awaken us. And Lord, even as it says in the book of Joel, Father, that 
Lord, that you would sound an alarm. God, that you would awaken the sleeper. Lord, awaken us out of our sleep and our slumber. Awaken us out of our lethargy and despair and compromise. God, we ask, Father, that every place that we, we are spiritually dead without life, Father, we ask, Father, for the life of your Holy Spirit, that you would quicken us and startle us out of our sleep. God, we ask, Lord, that for those in this room, Lord, with children, but also for those without children, God, that we would even think about the issue of our posterity in future generations, of what it is that they'll inherit and what it is where that they will receive in our nation. And God, we ask, Father, that truly, God, that there would be a great awakening, Lord, amongst us as a community of people to contend and to believe for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit across our nation. Lord, that you would revive us, that you would restore us. Father, you would bring restoration. If there's anybody that wants to 